Good morning, everybody. How are we doing? Good. Save your strength. Save your strength. Our series in Matthew has brought us this morning to chapter 4, verses 12 through 25. Neil and Rod came to me and they asked if I would be interested in preaching on something in the book of Matthew. And I said, that's a sermon series with my name written all over it. My kids don't think I'm funny either. <clears throat> it's our food for this morning. So turn in your Bibles or scroll on your iPod to Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 25. If you don't have a copy of God's Word this morning, I invite you to snuggle up next to somebody who does. Or if you need one, we've got some blue covered copies of God's Word. Just slip your hand up over here. Here they come. Here they come. You're going to need a... Um, you're going to need a copy of God's Word. If, if you're not in the habit, I just encourage you to bring your um, Bible to church, um, especially this church. Bible is our middle name. And, um, and um, Bible is to sermon what scuba gear is to deep sea diving. You're going to need this to survive the next 45 minutes. We, no one here needs to hear from me this morning. We need to hear from God this morning, amen? We need to hear from the Lord. Today's passage marks an important turning point in the book of Matthew. Up until this point, Matthew has been laying out his foundational groundwork. He's been laboring to prove Jesus' credentials as the Messiah. That's what, that's what he's been doing. He's been proving Jesus' credentials as the Messiah. The genealogy demonstrates that Jesus is the rightful heir to David's throne. The virgin birth demonstrates that Jesus has the credential of fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah's seventh chapter. The visit from the Magi demonstrates that Jesus has the credentials of being worshipped by all nations, fulfilling Psalm 86.9 and Jeremiah 10.7. Jesus' flight to Egypt in, in Matthew 2.15 demonstrates that Jesus has the credential of being the divine son from Hosea 2.15. His settlement in Nazareth Nazareth is a town that means branch. Demonstrates Jesus fulfills the messianic prophecy of Isaiah 11. And now, in today's passage, Matthew turns from proving Jesus' credentials to presenting Jesus' ministry. Let's stand. Let's, let's read God's word together. Matthew four twelve through 25. Now, when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the town of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. In the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness, have seen a great light. For those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me. And I'll make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. 
And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Let's pray. Almighty and merciful God, you break the power of evil and you make all things new. As we hear your word this morning, would you cause it to result in more understanding and godliness in us and more glory and praise for you. It's in the name of your son we pray these things. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. At first glance, it may appear that this morning we kind of have like a a loosely affiliated collection of stories about the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Seems like it's a a bunch of... um, Story's kind of put together. He's moving to Capernaum. He's calling some guys, and he's doing some stuff. And, uh, boy, that's what it looked like when, when Neil asked me to preach on this. I thought to myself, what is in here? A little bit more study, I think, reveals that what we have this morning is Matthew's overture of Jesus' ministry. Music guy, just confess, I have a degree in trombone performance. Do not bring that up afterwards. <laughs> Studied music, so I, I tend to think in like musical pictures. This is an overture. Do you know what an overture is? What, two ways for me to help you understand it. The first way is to have you hear that it's an instrumental introduction to an opera or other form of music story which introduces the themes of the story depicted and the melodies of the songs that are to follow. That's an overture. The second way for me to help you understand what an overture is would be to have you hear this. Okay. You know, Rod gets to bring up Lord of the Rings... Neil and I are stuck, okay? So here's what's happening. That might just seem like the theme song to Star Wars, but it's not. It's actually an overture. It's an overture. In it, there's a bunch of themes that are in it. Okay, here's one for you. This is the hero theme for Luke. That's Luke's hero theme, and whenever Luke is being a hero in the films, out it comes. Here's Luke's uh, challenge theme. Um, his challenge theme. Whenever Luke runs into challenge, that theme appears, okay? Okay, here's, you recognize this one? That's the empire theme. That's the empire theme. You'll hear it later. 
right? That's the empire theme. Whenever the empire shows up, that theme appears. Uh, here's, one, here's another one. This is the force theme. Right? That's whenever the force is being used. Has anybody not seen these movies? <clears throat> just, it's just occurring to me. Several of you are like, with me. Oh, man, this is the greatest sermon ever. <laughs> Others of you are like, not getting this. Okay? But this is, this is it. Okay? This is an overture. All of these themes are introduced in this overture to Star Wars. They're going to reoccur later in the movies. They're going to be developed. John Williams is teaching you in the overture. That's the composer's name. He's teaching you. He's training your ears to identify these themes so you're going to recognize how important they are when they reappear. Just like that. Matthew 4, 12 through 25, is introducing themes for Jesus' ministry. These themes are going to reoccur later in the gospel. They're going to be developed. Matthew is training us to identify these themes so that we're going to recognize their importance when they reappear later. Okay, so what are these themes that are here in the overture? There's three of them. I found three. There's probably more. I found three. Here they are. First one is God's sort of place. God's sort of people. And God's sort of rule or We'll take a look at these in order. First, God's sort of place. This is verses 12 through 17. This theme appears. God's sort of place. And the first thing to notice about God's sort of place is it's away from religious renown, all right? So verse 12 says, when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. Now that John is exiting, Jesus' ministry can really begin. It can take off. The forerunner is gone. In a track race, there's a, it's called the, the rabbit runner. Is the guy that goes around sort of like set the pace at the beginning. But he's not going to finish, right? In, in race cycling, it's called the domestique. In NASCAR, it's called the pace setter car. That's the only NASCAR illustration you're ever going to get from me. There it is. Okay, once the, their job is done, then the real race begins. And that's what's happening here. John is now off and now Christ's ministry jumps. This term Galilee indicates the northern part of Israel. So important to understand this. It did not get, my wife is so much better at this. My wife studies the maps in the back of the Bible. I didn't really put this together. Galilee is in the north. Judea is in the south. Judea is where Jerusalem is in the south. Galilee is a 70 by 40 mile area. Okay, so if you went here like 40 miles west, which is like the lake, into the water, actually, a bit. And then went south, um, like all the way down to like Benton Harbor. The thing about that, that's Galilee. That's the size of Galilee. Not an enormous place. It's also under Roman rule, but it's kind of far enough away north. It's away from the city centers to provide a lot of cover for Jesus. The southern part of Israel, Judea, that ultimately is going to represent Christ's rejection and his death. His ministry primarily is up in north, in Galilee, kind of off the grid a bit. The people in Jerusalem considered it marginally religious and less cultured. Galilee represents the wilderness culturally. Okay, so first of all, it's away from the religious renown. God's sort of place is away from religious renown. It's away from political prestige. This is verses 13. 
After leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. Now there's no, (laughs) you have to know, Capernaum, there's no ladders to climb in Capernaum. There's no um, spheres of influence. There's no huge investors in Capernaum. Now, if he had gone to Tiberias, which is another city on the Sea of Galilee, now that, that would be a different story. Tiberias is like the capital city of Herod Antipas there for Galilee. That's a place with political connections. Jesus doesn't go there. We actually, ironically, it says that Jesus went to every town in Galilee. We actually have no stories of him in Tiberias. Well, you'd think that would be like a slam dunk story, but it's not really important to him. The capital city. God's sort of place is away from religious renown. It's away from political prestige. Capernaum. Capernaum? Capernaum is a city whose name might mean the village of Nahum. And who could forget what Nahum did? Who could remember what Nahum did? Honestly. (laughs) Like, I, I was digging through Nahum looking for some connection, and Nahum 1.15 seems to indicate that Nahum actually lived in the south. So what is this town? It's so obscure. Jesus is leaving Nazareth, his, his family, and he's moving to this busy lakeside town with a fishing industry. Capernaum is a 10,000-person city, so big. It's on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. It seems to be like an administrative center for the Roman um, the Roman outpost there. Matthew 8, 5 tells us that there's a centurion there, so there seems to be some sort of military presence there, but not a huge one. Matthew 9, 9 indicates there's a tax booth there at Capernaum, probably because of the fishing industry. Jesus moves his God sort of place away from religious centers, away from political prestige. Thirdly, God sort of place. Jesus follows God's calling into the darkness. This is verses 14 through the end of 16, where it says that Jesus moving to this town, why did he move to this town? To fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. The land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. Now to call this region Galilee of the Gentiles, in verse 15, the back of 15, was to bring up the worst part of Galilee's past. The Galilean Jews had been exiled out of Galilee by the Assyrians twice. Once by Tiglath-Pileser in 2 Kings 15.29, and again by Shalmaneser. I will say that differently at the 11.15 service. I'm certain of it. In 2 Kings 17. Now, each time they take the Jewish people out of this area, foreigners come into the land and occupy it. Foreigners, non-Jews come into the cities, into the fields. They move in, into the space, and occupy it. To call this area Galilee of the Gentiles was a reminder of the consequence of the people's disobedience. It's, a remi- it's to remind them of the aftermath of their exile. The, to remind them of the repercussions of their rebellion. This is why the southern Jews in Judea and Jerusalem were suspicious of the purity of the Galilean Jewishness. Galilee of the Gentiles. But it gets worse. Verse 16, the people dwelling in darkness. These people are dwelling in darkness. Darkness is one of the richest metaphors in the Bible. 
Jeremiah 13, 16, uses darkness as a picture of judgment. Psalm 107, 10 uses darkness as a picture of captivity. Job 10, 21 uses darkness as a picture of death. But Isaiah's prophecy says that darkness is not the end here. Isaiah views the transition from darkness to light as the movement from hopelessness to hope. He uses this, Isaiah uses this initially as a picture of people in exile returning to the land, returning from exile from Assyria. And now Matthew, I I hope you get this, Matthew adds to this the sense that this is fulfilled in the person of Jesus. You've got to hear this. This, quoting this verse to the Jewish people, is a slap in their face And in 30 AD to tell them, listen, here's what you need to be. You need to be rescued from exile. They don't feel in exile. They're in the land. Why are you quoting to us a verse about being rescued from exile? We don't need to be rescued. We're not captives. We're not enslaved. Or were they? Or were they? Can you see how Matthew is telling them they're enslaved and captive? Think, think. Chapter 2, Matthew told us the story of Herod killing the male babies in Bethlehem to demonstrate, think just for a minute, if you're a Jewish people, a king is killing male Hebrew babies. Who does that sound like? Who does it sound like? Pharaoh. It's Pharaoh. Well, think about that. So what Matthew is telling the people is, you think this, you're, this is great. He's call, Herod is calling himself the king of the Jews, but the king of the Jews is acting like Pharaoh. We got to save. God has to save his son. Let's get him out of there. Where should we send him to keep him safe? To? He went to Egypt to be safe. Do you feel the irony? For the Jewish people to think that their, their king that they're looking at, Herod, that they love, Herod built them a temple. This is pretty good news, we think. Matthew's like, um, yeah. Who does he remind you of? He's killing male Hebrew babies, and God has to protect his Messiah by sending him to Egypt. Do you feel the slap that that is? The ruler of Israel was so wicked, God had to send his baby into Egypt to keep him safe. In the same way, in this passage, Matthew's using Isaiah's prophecy to say just such a thing. It's a prophecy about a rebellious Jewish people who were punished by God about to return from captivity. And just wait till you hear the part about fishers of men. I'm getting ahead of myself. Notice this word, dawned. Dawned. This light in this darkness has dawned. This might, a better translation for this might be risen. A light has risen. That, that's sort of echoing chapter 2, verse 2, and chapter 2, verse 9, and maybe even the prophecy in, in Balaam from Numbers 24. But hear, hear this. Oh, this will encourage you. It's not that Jerusalem's light has reached Galilee. It's not that the religious place is shining out and it's reached Galilee. No. The light is starting in Galilee. It's a picture of grace, okay? Light has begun in the least deserving, darkest place. Jesus has come not to call the righteous, but sinners. Question for us. 
What is the darkest part of your life? What's the darkest part? What's the darkest part of your family? Who is your darkest friend? What's the darkest relationship you have? Hear this glorious truth this morning. Do not brighten the place up to get it ready for Jesus. Jesus goes into the darkness and shines his light. Light begins in the least deserving, darkest place. What does that light look like? Here, now we're in verse 17. What does that light look like? From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Oh, finally. We've been waiting four chapters for Jesus to do something. And now he's stepping up. Now he's, he, the passivity is over. M- move over, Carrie Underwood. Jesus takes the wheel. <laughs> move over, John the Baptist. Jesus is on the scene. Do you hear the link to chapter 3, verse 2? He says the exact same words as John the Baptist. Repent. Turn around. You're going the wrong way. Neil was so helpful. There's a tornado coming. All right? Run into the bunker. There's a train coming. Get off the track. The kingdom of heaven is coming. Repent. The coming of a kingdom meant that a revolution was at hand. It might be helpful for you to, to picture just some of the images we've seen recently of the Arab Spring, some of the revolutionary political movements that have been occurring recently. As God's people, the Jewish people knew they should not be ruled by pagans. They knew that was not right. And they knew God had promised to rescue them and to be their king. And they knew that he wasn't going to be just their king. He was going to be everyone's king. And they knew he would be a just king who would bring peace and blessing to the world. But they got a little confused about the revolution. They thought it might be a revolution of fighting and killing to get rid of their Roman oppressors. But it wasn't. And it was for sure not going to be a religious revolution of fighting and killing in God's name. Jesus knows you can't fight darkness with darkness. You can't fight darkness with religious posturing. You cannot fight darkness with political maneuvering. How do you fight darkness? God sends light into the world. Okay, so here's our first theme. First, we see that God's sort of place is not a religiously or politically connected place, but God moves into places of darkness. That's his sort of place. Second theme is found in verses 18 through 22. This is God's sort of people. God's sort of people. What type of person is God's sort of person? Verse 18. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. All right? First thing to know about God's sort of people, it's unlikely people. It is unlikely people. What makes them unlikely? Well, first of all, they're from nowhere special. Can we talk about the Sea of Galilee for a minute? In Luke's gospel, he calls it a lake. It's a body of water about 13 miles by 8 miles. 13 north-south, 8. Just to give you some comparison, Lake Michigan is 300 miles by 110 miles. All right? This, is, this has more in common with the pond at Cornerstone than it does Lake Michigan. Sometimes in the Old Testament, it gets its name from an adjoining plain that's kind of right next to it. So it's called sometimes the Lake of Gennesaret. 
That's in like Numbers 34 and Joshua 12. Sometimes in John, it's called, it's named after the capital city on its shore. It's called the Sea of Tiberias in John 6 and John 21. Matthew most often calls it the Sea of Galilee. And the town where Peter and Andrew are from is Bethesda. That's not right. Bethsaida. Bethsaida. If you just translated the word Bethsaida, it means fish town. That's what it means. These people are from nowhere special. Also, they're unlikely because they have really boring names, okay? They have strange names. Simon is a Jewish name. Andrew is a Greek name. What household names their kids Jewish and Greek names together? That just shows you the, the Galilee of the Gentiles. Do you see how both of those things are held together? Simon, who's called Peter, won't actually get his nickname until Matthew 16. And when we went through the book of Acts, we noticed the lack of variety among boys' names in turn of the, turn of the millennium Israel. Apparently, the ultimate baby boy names book in Israel was like a brochure or maybe a post-it note. There are four other Simons in the book of Matthew. There's four, including one of Jesus' brothers and even another one of the disciples is also named Simon. Okay? It's also unlikely because they have bizarre employment. We're going to be talking about fishermen more in a moment. Suffice to to say for now, this is dangerous work that no one wanted to do. No one wanted to do this. Fishermen were small business owners who could make a living, maybe a bit more sometimes. It was not luxurious living. God's sort of people are unlikely. But secondly, they also are called to commitment. They're called to commitment. Verses 19, Jesus says to them, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he sees two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee. Listen for how many times the word Zebedee is mentioned here. For a guy who doesn't say anything. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and they called him. And immediately they left the boat and their father, Zebedee, and followed him. Now, this story does not sound like your typical rabbi stories. Again, rabbis never called disciples to follow them. They were approached. Rabbis were approached by people who wanted to become followers. So the story that Matthew tells us has a lot more in common with the story of Elijah's call of Elisha in 1 Kings 19. Neil did such a great job of showing us John as Elijah, and now Jesus is acting like Elijah as well. Some things jump out to us here. Notice, Christ's kingdom doesn't need supporters. It needs subjects of his rule. This isn't a rabbinical call to come learn. It's a call to come fish. Now, let's talk about fishing. We've got to lose our immediate preconceptions of how fishing works. We view fishing as something you do on a day off, something you can do in your retirement. Remember, the Jewish concept of water is that it's chaotic and dangerous. My wife um, and I this summer spent um, almost two weeks in um, Israel. Oh, did I drop that? Okay. Hmm. It's just fun to say. We did. We spent two weeks in Israel. And one of the things that we did was um, we saw the Sea of Galilee. We saw the Sea of Galilee, and it was a beautiful day. 
It was a beautiful sun. It was a bit warm. It was a perfect day out. We saw the sea. And do you know what we saw out on the water? Nothing. No canoeing. No water skiing. No jet skiing. No crazy uncle trying to get his nephew up barefoot water skiing. No bodyboarding. No kite surfing. No parasailing. No youth pastors with a goatee piling sets of awkward teenagers onto their tubes for an insane battle royale featuring the same girl getting hurt every week, okay? (laughs) That's the Michigan view of water activity. You see some beautiful water? If there's any lakes near you, you know there's a dock. We got to get lakeshore housing so that we can do some water. That's the Western view of water activity. The Jewish worldview sees water as a place of chaos and danger. It is the tohu vabohu. Rod does that so much better than me, sorry. Which is um, in Genesis 1-2, that it's formless and void. That's, remember before God started ordering what he had made, it was formless and void, and the spirit was over the surface of the right. This was not a good thing. Israel had a fine army. They never had a navy. Jonah has to go find a bunch of Gentiles to try to get him to Tarshish. When God restores the heavens and the earth, in Revelation 21.1, the verse says, and the sea will be no more. Okay, so a fisherman, a fisherman, a Jewish fisherman, is an anomaly in the Jewish worldview. It is a social moray. It would be featured on the Jewish Discovery Channel's Dirty Jobs. A fisher of men is someone who goes into the chaos and pulls out people. I promise you the thing from Jeremiah um, 16. In Jeremiah 16, God describes his sort of ministers who will bring idolatrous people back out of the chaos. Jeremiah writes, this is Jeremiah 16, 14 through 18. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it shall no longer be said, as the Lord lives who brought the people out of the land of Egypt, but instead, as the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the north and out of all of the countries where he had driven them. For I will bring them back to their own land that I gave to their fathers. Behold, God says, I am sending for many fishers, declares the Lord, and they shall catch them. For my eyes are on all of their ways. They're not hidden from me, nor is their iniquity concealed from my eyes. But first I will doubly repay the iniquity and their sin because they have polluted my land with the carcasses of their detestable idols and have filled my inheritance with their abominations. Fishers of men is a picture of a jealous God who's about to come clean house. It is not a picture of a hobby. People's ears were tingling when Jesus called for fishers of men. Let's just notice the commitment that these men show. They're, They're calling to this commitment. Why do people leave their things to join Jesus? Why did fishermen leave their nets and their livelihood to follow Christ? What about Zebedee? One reason... Why many scholars think he's mentioned so many times is because they think he becomes an important part of the first century church. 
instead of just leaving his name out, maybe they were mentioning him because he was actually part of the church at that, by that point, which I love. Why did the disciples leave their nets? Why have so many of you walked away from promising careers? Why have you turned your back on the corporate ladder? Why do some of you use your vacation time to repair wells in Haiti? Ultimately, it's because we've been called. And what's the precise details of what he's called us to? He doesn't really tell us, does he? I mean, Peter and Andrew are both going to be crucified here. And not very long, James, very soon from now, is going to be killed by Herod. But they receive this gladly because they had him. In him, they had purpose. In him, they had meeting. In him, Paul says, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, Colossians 2, 3. No one can serve two masters. And those who try, we're going to see some examples of those later in the book of Matthew, fail to be true disciples. This doesn't mean that true disciples live a life of, above the fray. Matthew's going to show us that they need to have their faith strengthened. But here's a question from our text. Does following Christ mean turning your back on your family? In this passage, the answer seems to be yes. But we need to be careful about reading too narrowly here and creating just a theology of giving stuff up. Yes, Peter leaves his family. But we'll see in chapter 8, verse 14, he's going to go back to take care of his sick mother-in-law. Yes, James and John leave the fishing industry and they leave Zebedee. But we're going to see several times in the book of Matthew where Jesus and his disciples are on a fishing boat. Where did they get that boat? Maybe not all of those relationships were completely severed. Jesus does want to highlight this aspect of discipleship, this call to commitment. In 19, chapter 19, verses 21 through 29, he's going to contrast it with the almost faith of the rich man. Okay, so we've seen God's sort of place and God's sort of people. Now in verses 23 through 25, it's our third theme, God's sort of activity. I'm sick, aren't I? All right. I've been telling them, I'm fine. No, seriously, that's just, just a little lung butter. It's fine. God's sort of activity, okay? Here's his, his, here's his sort of activity, okay? His presence. His sort of activity is his presence. He goes into the midst. His first activity, look at verse 23. He went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. His first activity as Messiah is not a commanding of rules, but it's a giving of himself. Wow, his presence, he walks into it. Where does he go? It says, throughout all Galilee. This means, throughout Galilee means that Jesus went throughout the region of Galilee, not that he set foot on every inch of the soil. And, and it seems like he's, he's accepted here in the early parts of Matthew. But notice that little verse, that little word in the verse, I'm teaching in their synagogues, in their synagogues. Matthew seems to be indicating by the point he writes, maybe they're not his synagogues anymore. And what is he proclaiming? He's proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Matthew uses this term gospel four times in his book. 
two times, the first two times, this verse and 9.35, Jesus proclaims the gospel. Verses, uh, verses 20, uh, chapter 24.14 and 26.13, the early church proclaims the gospel. The kingdom refers to the reign of God rather than the location of heaven. Okay, wouldn't it have been great to hear him preach? All of these verses going from town to town in Galilee, wouldn't it have been electric to hear him preach? Secondly, God's sort of activity is his presence. And secondly, finally here, his rule. He rules over wherever he goes. Verse 23b, healing every disease and every affliction among the people. This is an improvement over John the Baptist. John the Baptist never healed anybody. Jesus shows up, proclaims the same message it seems, and now he's healing people. But never as an end to himself. His healings indicate the establishment of God's new thing, God's kingdom. It's his sovereign rule. It's his saving work. This demonstrates Christ's reign over every sickness. Sickness has two, um, one main cause. Sin causes sickness. And that can be the personal sin of the person who is sick, or it can be the general result of sinfulness in our world. The kingdom of God, the Messiah's reign has come to put an end to both of those things. And so his, fa- his fame, verse 24, spread throughout all Syria. They bring him the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons and epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. Matthew's choosing these stories out of a large number of possibilities. Can you just tell there's a thousand stories that we do not have? Some of those we'll actually hear in John or in Luke. So it's not strange that they have stories that Matthew doesn't have. He's telling us there's a bunch of stories. After defeating the devil directly in the first part of chapter 4, now Jesus arrives on the scene as one who heals from demonic possession. Jesus is going to give us other stories. Matthew's going to give us other stories of healings from demons, like chapter 8, verse 28. He's going to give us other stories of Christ healing epileptics in chapter 17, verse 14. Paralytics are going to get healed in chapter 9. These are the themes that are going to appear later. Jesus' merciful work clearly shows the people just how real God's rule is. So now the great crowds, verse 25, they follow him from Galilee and the Decapolis. That's the north. And from Jerusalem and Judea. That's the south. And from beyond the Jordan in the east. And when the crowds follow him, Matthew starts to use the, the same word that, for the crowds that he uses for the disciples. They're following So now it seems we have an outer circle and an inner circle. Matthew makes a distinction here about them. That's going to be a key theme as we move forward. Okay, so there's our three themes. There's our three themes. God is establishing his sort of place. Okay, it's away from religious and political prestige, and it's into the darkness. God is calling his sort of people. It's unlikely people who are being called to wholehearted commitment. And God is doing his sort of activity. He's moving in and he's establishing his reign. These are three themes for Matthew. But is there more here? Is there more? Is there some connection that we should see? Yes. Yes, there is. We've learned here at Crossroads, primarily from Neil, that God establishes his kingdom with three things. God's people in God's place with God's blessing. And Neil made this visual for us. 
He's really good at visuals. It's just a side note how much I love Neil Martin. He was over at my house, like, trying to describe what a previous job he had been working on before he worked at Crossroads. I had no idea what he was talking about. And he could see it on my face. He got like a napkin and a pen. And like 18 seconds later, I was like, oh, yeah. He's so visually minded. I really admire that. I wish I could do that. I can't. Look at this. Here's the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God has three things. It's God's people in God's place with God's blessing. When God establishes his kingdom, he puts these three things together. When God established his kingdom in the beginning, he put his people, Adam and Eve, in his place, the Garden of Eden, with his presence and his rule and his blessing. What does it say? It says in Genesis 1.22, God's first words after the creation words, his first words to the people, Genesis 1.22, God blessed them, saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas. I copied that wrong. Be fruitful. God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply. That's what it says. When God established his new thing through Noah, he puts his people, Noah, and his family in his place, the newly cleansed earth. And the first thing he says, Genesis 9.1, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. When God establishes his new people in Abraham, God's people in Abraham, He called him to go to God's sort of place, the promised land. And in Genesis 12, 2 and 3, God says, I will bless you and make your name great. So what we have here in Matthew chapter 12, chapter 4, verses 12 through 25, is not three random stories. We have Jesus establishing his kingdom, establishing the kingdom of God. Well, except we don't exactly have the word blessing. We have God's people. He's got this new group of fishermen. We have his place. We have his presence. We have his rule. I just wish we had the word blessing. Wouldn't that be nice? And we don't exactly know what he taught in those cities. Oh, that was so close. Wait a minute. Oh, yes, we do. We know what he taught in those cities. It's in the next chapter. Sermon on the Mount. Oh, What's the first word of the Sermon on the Mount? Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Jesus is establishing the kingdom of God. Here's his type of people in his sort of place. Here's his presence moving in. We see his rule over the forces of darkness and of evil. We see his rule. He's going to be bringing his teaching and his way of life in the Sermon on the Mount. And we're going to see him blessing the people. I don't want to get going too much on that. Brandon Hirth is preaching next week on the Beatitudes. It is a do not miss. Especially if you've got um, high school kids, make sure they're here. Brandon's like our youth guy. You will. I saw that. I saw you say you're not going to be here. No, yes, you will. You get here. (laughs) Get here. Isn't this interesting? Now, the last thing is that we're supposed to be blessing the world. So Adam and Eve... God says to Adam and Eve, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. He says to Noah, blessed to be a blessing, go fill the earth. He says to Abraham, I will bless you so that you can be a blessing to all the nations. 
Do we have any of that in this passage? Yeah, yeah. Matthew ends in Matthew 28, the Great Commission. Where does that happen? I'll, I'll just read it to you. Here's Matthew 28, 16 through 20. So they've been in Jerusalem where Jesus has conquered death. And Jesus says to the disciples, go to Galilee. Here's verse 16, Matthew 28, 16. Now the 11 disciples went back to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him. But some doubted. I love that. I love that. The risen Christ who is there in front of them. And some of the 11 apparently were like, I don't know. I don't know. Can I tell you what an encouragement it is for me on days where I'm like, oh, it's hard to like get this into my head. That is an encouragement to me. When they saw Christ, they worshiped him. Some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus' Galilean ministry points to this Galilean commission for us to bless all the nations with the teaching of the gospel. Galilee of the Gentiles becomes Galilee for the Gentiles. And the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our God and of his son, and he shall reign forever. Amen? Let's pray. Our great God and our great king. We are so blessed to be your people. God, I I pray for the person here who is not part of your kingdom, who has not heard your calling. God, would you call them this morning? Would you allow your light to break through and shine? God, in the the midst of a a sick pastor with a a long, confusing, and involved message, God, Holy Spirit, Would you come and shine in their hearts this morning? Help them to hear your call, Christ. Help them to see you as what what we all need. Thank you for your kingdom. Thank you that it doesn't start in the places that this world would think of. It doesn't start with the people that we would think of, God. But you have called unlikely people like us, like me, like our church. And you are using us to bring your light to this world. You are giving us your presence. You have given us your presence in your spirit. You're giving us your um, rule through your word. And now we get to go bless the world, God, because of what you've done in us and through us. Thank you, God. Thank you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray.
Your love, 